everyone, welcome to our event, um, Foster Care, An Essential Call. This event is co-sponsored by the National Review Institute. Um, and you can learn more about the National Review Institute and the Catholic Information Center by reading the event description below or visiting our website at CICDC.org. Um, we're here today with uh, Beckett Plaintiff, Melissa Buck, uh, Catholic Association lawyer, Andrea Bacata-Bear, and adoption and foster care advocate, Sarah uh, Zazowski. Um, our event is gonna be moderated by the wonderful editor-at-large at National Review, Catherine Jean Lopez. Um, so let's go ahead and get started um, on this important conversation. Catherine, why don't you uh, take the screen and, and get the conversation going? Well, thank you everyone for joining us and thank you especially to our speakers for taking time as well to uh, talk to us. I want to get right into the conversation um, and let speakers kind of introduce themselves. Um, Melissa, can we start with you? So you're, you're a foster mom, as Rosemary mentioned, uh, you've been involved in a Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty case. And, and I have to say from the start, you know, it, it, part of the reason that I started focusing so much on, on adoption and foster care is because it drives me crazy that we only talk about adoption and foster care when there's some kind of scandal or when there's some kind of legal or political conflict. And the fact of the matter is we should be talking about it every day um, to try to figure out how to help vulnerable children and help families who are trying to help vulnerable children. And, um, and so, but the one thing I ha do have to say about these legal cases is it does give us an opportunity um, to get into the, the, the news cycle. And um, so, so I'll be frank, we're taking advantage of the fact that there's gonna be a Supreme Court case and that you've been to court. Um, it's also, of course, National uh, Foster Care Month right, right now. So that's another way we can hook in. But Melissa, uh, how, how did you first get involved in foster care in the first place? So my husband and I tried to have uh, children biologically, but it didn't work for us. And so we were kind of weighing our options of what we wanted to do. And there was a time in our life where my husband worked in mall security of all things. And when he would walk the hallway down to their locker room, there were these big posters and they were hidden in the hallway. So not everybody could see them. And they were kids who were waiting for families. And there was a child who was a teenager and all they wanted was a parent to love. All this boy wanted was a mother. And so in talking about that and really thinking and praying, we decided to go ahead and move towards um, foster care with the intent to adopt and got hooked up with St. Vincent Catholic Charities, which is an amazing organization. And we just fell in love with the whole process. And we'll talk about this more a little bit later, but can you just talk about why St. Vincent's is so important to making your family work? Yes, of course. We love our agency because we have a very personal relationship with them. They're like an extension of our family. Um, our licensing worker has was there for us every single step of the way. She would you know, call us if you're a rough visit and make sure that my husband and I were doing okay, that the children were doing well. Uh, you know, our caseworkers would give us their personal cell phone number so that we could call them anytime, day or night. They went to doctor's visits with us an hour and a half away from our home because we had a medically fragile child in our care who needed a lot of uh, medical attention. And they've just really kind of been right by our side throughout the entire journey. Even now, post-adoption, uh, we know that we can call and rely on them. In fact, they host a uh, support group that meets once a month. I'm actually missing it. It's going on right now. They're having a Zoom meeting as well. <laughs> and we get to sit around and talk, you know, adoption. We get to mentor and talk to new foster parents. And it's the only support group really around us that anybody can go to. And it's just still helping us so much as we continue this journey. And so when you went to court, it wasn't some kind of uh, esoteric academic argument about religious liberty. It was super practical for you. Yes, they do so much work in our community. They are so effective 
at recruiting foster parents, training foster parents who can last longer than one case. And they are very effective at placing sibling groups, children with uh, medical uh, issues and, and children who would typically be considered hard to place and they successfully place them in families. Now, this is what drives me, um, uh, makes me so mad about some of these religious liberty conflicts. Um, we're, we're dealing with agencies that work well. <laughs> these religious agencies work well with families and with children and, um, and we're cutting, cutting them off. Mm -hmm. um, at, at a time where, you know, before this pandemic, we had a crisis in foster care and all indications are it's going to be even worse after. Um, I understand that we in America have lots of fundamental differences, um, but if there's one thing that we can do and decide to agree on is let's help the kids and have more options to help them rather than less. Um, we don't have to agree on every fundamental issue. Andrea, could you talk, you've become a bit of an expert in this area. You're a lawyer um, and, um, and you write about religious liberty. Uh, you specifically have written an amicus brief um, pertaining to this case in Philadelphia, which is another one that drives me mad, um, where again, the city of Philadelphia announces that there's a crisis in foster care and they need more families. At the same time, they cut off Catholic social services in the city from, from uh, working with families and children. Um, can you talk a little bit about the case and why it's so important? Absolutely. Um, you're right that it's a frustrating case and, and I'm sure um, the situation in Michigan is, is equally frustrating. I'm from Michigan as well and it pains me uh, to know that my state is, is kind of abandoning its commitment to faith-based foster care and adoption agencies, especially Catholic ones that have been in the business often before even the government has been uh, taking care of foster care and adoption. So the case that you mentioned um, is, is called uh, Sharon L. Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. Uh, Miss Fulton, also known as Mem, to her uh, countless foster children uh, is, is uh, joins one other foster mother and Catholic Social Services of Philadelphia. And they're fighting for the right of this agency to be a part of the solution to the foster care crisis in Philadelphia. The agency has been uh, working, gosh, the Catholic Church has been working for over two centuries in Philadelphia, attending to the needs of orphaned and abused and neglected kids. And the church has been partnering with the city for over 50 years. And in March of 2018, the city told the agency if they wouldn't do pre-placement certifications of same-sex couples, that they would not have their agreement with the city to continue foster care placement. And as we know, a coherent Catholic needs to be coherent in all that we do. Um, and that's probably why uh, Catholics respond to the needs of foster and adoptive kids, is we see that this is uh, part of establishing or reestablishing a culture of life. Um, the case is going to be heard. Uh, briefing is started already. Uh, and the case will be heard oral arguments in October. And the issue is going to be whether or not what's presented as a neutral anti-discrimination law doesn't require an exemption for religious observers. And in this case, the, the agency Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia is basically saying if a same-sex couple comes to us, none ever has, but if a same-sex couple comes to us, we'll refer them to one of the 29 other agencies working with the city. So this isn't about closing doors to same-sex couples to foster or eventually adopt. It's about keeping doors open. And uh, Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia, just like St. Vincent's, the stories that I've heard and the people that I've met from the agency are really, in, in my opinion, living saints and, and living our faith in a beautiful way in supporting kids in needs and continuing to accompany these families. And Andrea, you made a point that is so critical and, and really 
um, does, um, does call people to a new kind of attention when it's pointed out, there was no complaint in Philadelphia. There was no same-sex couple that said, these people are unfair and, and there's, there's no complaint. And, um, and one of the, the encouraging things that I've found um, about some of these court cases and some of the conflicts that we have surrounding this right now is, is people, you know, there, there are people who are wedded to their ideology, but there are also people who can, again, have fundamental differences on, on the nature of marriage, on, on, on other things that, that cuts to the core of their lives and yet say, but we need the Catholic church in this, in this mix. Um, we can agree to disagree. Um, we, can have, we can have agencies that, that serve everyone. We have agencies that, that um, have, have to speak to their operate according to their conscience. Um, and um, and I mean, that, that's the way I think we need to move forward um, because we adults are not going to solve our, all our fundamental differences in you know, the next year in um, maybe our lifetimes. Um, and, um, and these kids don't have a lot of time. And, um, and as, as Sarah can, can speak to a little bit in, in her own story, Adoption from foster care can be a life and death issue. It totally can change the, the, the uh, trajectory of a child's life. Um, Sarah, can you talk a little bit about your story? Absolutely. So um, my name is Sarah and I spent seven and a half years in foster care uh, prior to my adoption at age nine. Um, I was placed in care for the first time at 16 months. I went into care um, largely because um, of abuse in my family, uh, neglect in my family, my mother's mental illness, um, and my mom had 11 children. I was one of 11. Um, and those are many of the reasons a lot, a lot of kids go into care for the very first time. I went in at 16 months with basically a t-shirt and an empty bottle and um, a family that said, no matter what, I'm committed to you. Um, the social worker told my foster care family that to expect that I would have mental health problems, to expect, um, you know, a lot of trauma, you know, things that had happened to me, um, and all those things did happen. Um, but they said we're we're in it with her for the long haul. We're committed to her for the long haul. And of course, they were scared. Of course, they were nervous. Um, but that was their attitude going in. Um, and the social worker also told them that they. Um, could get a call at any point and that I'd be returned to my biological family. Um, that did happen and um, it was devastating and hard for them, um, but uh, they still were faithful and committed to me and to my family and to my birth mother throughout the whole process. Um, in my case, I, uh, I spent so long in care was because my mother's rights were terminated and that took the state a long time. Uh, to accomplish that. And that's because they have to prove uh, abuse and neglect in a family. Um, and of course, now that I'm a mother myself, I understand how important it is to, um, to give chance after chance after chance for reunification to take place. And um, I always say this when I speak about foster care, that the goal of foster care is actually reunification with the birth family. And I believe that is, um, in my personal view, God's ideal. However, um, in a lot of cases in our broken world, that's not possible. Um, so I was adopted when I was a nine after her, my birth mother's rights were terminated. Um, and you know, in my biological family, I experienced a plethora of abuse and um, neglect. And unfortunately the environment I was in breeded hostility in my siblings among each other. We're always fighting, uh, whether it was for my mother's attention or it was for food, there was just competition. And it bred, that kind of environment breeds that. Um, and unfortunately, when you see foster care children, um, as they become teenagers, you often see roads to drug abuse and promiscuous sex and things like that. And that's because they lack stability in their younger years. I believe it's because of my foster care families and eventual adop adopted families commitment to me that I, uh, did, was able to avoid that. And, um, I'm really passionate about foster care kids because I had a sister who, overdosed when she was 19 on drugs um, as a result, in my view, of her lack of stability with a foster care family and uh, uh, inability to be adopted later. So 
that's kind of why my passion is so uh, great for kids in these situations. I hope that answers your question. It's kind of a long answer, but. Oh, thank you, thank you. And Melissa, as you have become um, a de facto spokesperson for, for adoption and foster, from foster care in particular, um, what, are, what are some of the, the questions you're most surprised by and, and what do you find yourself wanting to relay to people the most about foster care? <laughs> um, well, I think a lot of the time um, it's the questions of how can you love them? Like, you know, wouldn't you have rather had biological children and how can you you know, love those kids, how can they really act as if they're siblings? Because we do have some siblings, but we also have some children who aren't related to one another. And it is, I mean, if you told them they weren't related, they would come after you a little bit. <laughs> because, I mean, it's just possible. They're your children. You claim them and you make them yours and you love them and they are your family. You know, we have always said in our family and that being related biologically is really only important if you need a kidney, that it's about um, how you feel about one another, that that really matters. Um, I did have someone ask me, uh, you know, how bad my kids were, that they had to come into care. And like Sarah said, it's through no fault of their own that they are in foster care. They are in foster care because they were not properly taken care of. And that's not anything that they can help. Um, and they're just, you know, how could you give a kid back? Would you ever be able to do it? Yeah, we've done it because God provided a way for us to make it through it because we are adults and we can handle it and we have a support system. I mean, there are so many, gosh, there are just so many different things. You know, people are really curious about it because for the majority of it, like you said earlier, we only talk about it when there's a scandal going on or something is really, you know, awful happening. And, and what you see on TV, on, you know, on television shows, it's really negative towards foster care. And I think people are really curious. So we get, I mean, we get the whole gamut of questions, but these kids are good kids at heart and they're scared. Um, and they need, they need love and support. Like Sarah said, like the commitment, they need that in order to make it, um, and it is entirely possible, you know, with God, we know that all things are possible. So to be able to love them, to parent them, to help them break that cycle is completely possible. And what, um, you know, it's striking to me during this pandemic, it's um, it's so hard for adults some days, right? <laughs> crazy and, and all the rest. Thank God we have the luxury of going stir crazy, right? Yeah. Um, but I just keep, I can't help but continue to think we're adults, my goodness, you know, I mean, children who have to live with uncertainty on a good day, you know, I mean, this, this has got to rally us, hasn't it? Yes. Um, and <laughs> yes, I, um, you know, I look at my kids and I look at my oldest child was almost five when he came to live with us and he was a caretaker already. He was a caretaker of a two-year-old and a one-year-old. That was his job. When they were removed from their home, CPS um, came to remove them and he was the one who could find where their clothing was. He was the one who knew where everything was in the house. It was his job to care for them and not to be four. Like he didn't know what it meant to sit at a table and color with a coloring book and crayons because he was so used to just keeping the children quiet and trying to meet their needs and take care of them. And so when I think about that, I think about the fact that my child at four years old had endured things that in my, I was in my twenties then that I had never even come across before. We have these kids that are dealing with these adult situations in minds that are not fully developed yet. Then we wonder why they act out. We wonder why they get upset and we wonder why they run from us. And I think, you know, it's hard enough sometimes for my mind to grasp the things that my children endured and went through and their underdeveloped, traumatized minds have to focus through that. And it's like, how can we not jump at every chance we can get to help these kids, support them, put every resource we have towards them to just help them 
to feel like they can relax, to cope, to work through this and to, and to know that they're safe again, you know? Right. Right. Yesterday, I was talking to a man named John Bullions. He's a BMX spike star. And, um, and he, as a, as a child, the reason he was removed from his home is because he tried to kill his biological father who was trying to kill his mother. So the child was defending his mother against his father. And, and you just, and then, and Sarah talks about having to fight for food as a child, you know, I mean, are, are, how many people are whining about the inability to find toilet paper or whatever everyone's hoarding this week, you know? I mean, thanks be to God, you know, most of us, every once in a while you go to the grocery store and you can't find chicken or something, you know? I mean, if that's the worst problem we have in a pandemic, you know? Um, thanks be to God. But Sarah, and what are, what are your thoughts in particular? I, I have the feeling that a lot of people are tuning in tonight and tuning in after the fact as well, because of, of some of what's going on in the world right now. You know, people are appreciating in a new way, the shortness of life, um, you know, reassessing what their purpose is, what their mission is, what God's calling them to do. Um, for people who might be logging on thinking, you know, maybe, maybe we do need to make some more room in our home for someone. Maybe we have a little more love to give, you know? Um, and knowing that what we've been just talking about is true, um, that there are going to be some really harsh, ugly things that these children maybe have been um, experiencing in their lives, um, things that are they're harder than, than a lot of us have had to, to face in our lives. Why should, they, why should they go forward anyway, Sarah? I think that I'm, my prayer is that this pandemic is giving a little picture of what a foster kid goes through and that it softens the hearts of those who are unfamiliar with it because, you know, our shortage of toilet paper and chicken, I can tell you, because I know because we're experiencing here in Louisiana, one of the hotspots for the virus is nothing compared to the shortage of food I had as a child. So, and I'm not saying that to minimize anyone's suffering right now. Yeah, let's use this experience to say, wow, let, what is it like to get in the shoes of a foster care kid that is desperate for food to the extent that they will fight their flesh and blood for food? And that's what it was like in my family. And ultimately the real question is what has the Heavenly Father, what has God called us to do in order to meet the needs of those that are facing those shortages? Um, you know, oftentimes people do ask me that question or they'll say that, you know, I'm not prepared to take in a foster kid or um, even my parent, you know, my adopted parents, they were scared. They're like, I don't know if I'm equipped. You know, they had a three bedroom average income family and one extra room for me. That was it. And they saved my life. That's my belief is that they saved my life. Uh, you know, an elementary school teacher and a, a dad who worked at the Department of Motor Vehicles. These are two people that saved my life regular American people um, and hardworking people. And I think that you hear that and you think, okay, maybe I can do it. So I think that's why I share my story is to say, you don't have to, you think you have to have, you know, this lofty plan for your life or this huge house or something that you might not have when really what you need is the love and commitment in your heart to take care of someone. And that, and that commitment that is, um, that is pure and, um, and that will, take the risk because there are risks and there are things that are challenging about taking in children that have been through trauma. Um, but that's, I think what's required and that's what they did for me. So that's what I hope my story brings about is people to hear that message to say, you don't have to be extraordinary, but actually you are extraordinary when you do something like that. Um, just co committing yourself to this child into their life and their well-being. Um, if your heart's open to that, I think, I think you're ready. Andrea, can you talk about some of the um the heroes that you've um met focusing on this philadelphia case absolutely um i would say uh the heroes are, are a lot like sarah and melissa and the people that they uh count on and and work with at the agencies that they're uh that they've experienced um or partnering with still 
So uh, the amicus briefs or friend of the court's briefs that uh, we filed in the Fulton case have been on behalf of former foster children that were placed by Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia and foster parents or adopted parents. Um, now at the Supreme Court stage, we've extended it to people who have been um, in other jurisdictions that either have closed because of these um, anti-discrimination pressures or are threatened to be closed like in Michigan. And, and what's really quite beautiful is um, the stories of their life are real and they're raw. And um, at the end of any conversation that I've had with any of these people, you really see that there's a moment of grace where either the foster care process or the adoption care process um, directed a person out of darkness, especially a, a child out of a situation of darkness into light where they saw how wonderfully loved they are. Um, in many cases, they understood the love of God the Father for the first time through the love that their foster parents or adopting parents showed them. And so um, speaking with, with all of these people, and you see kind of the, the successes. Some of them are worldly successes, but a lot of it is a, a success of gratitude and thanksgiving that both sides of the equation have and the people working in these agencies have for the chance to be able to collaborate. And I, I think Catherine and I were speaking earlier today about you know, what, we, what role we can play in all of this. You know, I'm a mother to many, but, but they're all biological children. And I think part of it is to be able to say, foster families and adoptive families are families and they have struggles and they have a lot of history that oftentimes the parents don't know a child is bringing when they come into the home. So they're gonna need a lot more supports, but they thrive and they succeed when they really know that this is an issue about love. And like Sarah mentioned before, you don't have to be a saint to get into the mix, but I truly believe that once you are, you are going to be called even more to, to live that general calling to be that saint in the lives of the children around you. So, you know, I, I think of all of the people in these briefs as my friends um, for sharing their story, just like Sarah shared hers and Melissa was talking about her children. And it's important that we listen because this is what's going to make the difference. This is how we're going to face this crisis as a church, as individuals in our own homes by listening and wanting to be a part of alleviating the suffering and, and shedding light for people to be able to feel love. Just to uh, underscore a point you just made, Andrea, when we were talking earlier, the way you put it was um, when, you, when you started to focus on this foster care case, you realized you, you're so busy with, with your family um, as, as so many people are in whatever context their family was created, right? You, you just sort of hadn't realized foster families are kind of just like your family, you know? There are kids screaming and making a mess and being adorable and driving you crazy and um, lots of similar elements. And, and remembering that that piece of it is really important. And then the added piece of, yeah, yeah, they probably need more help because they're dealing with added issues in, in many cases. And, um, and one thing that, that I always try to say is that, like, like you were just saying, Andrea, not all of us are going to be foster parents, but all of us have a role to play in, in, um, in, this, in this picture. And, uh, you know, especially Catholics often, we don't know who, you know, we don't know that there are foster parents down the pew from us, um, or I guess skipping a pew now in socially distanced world, but we often don't know the, str the struggles or, or just the basic facts of people in our parish. And that's, that's unacceptable. And, um, and, and I do hope that, that part of what this, this time is doing is helping us appreciate that, you know, maybe we haven't fully been Christian. Um, you know, we, maybe we haven't been living the fullness of it because you do read in the Bible about caring for widows and orphans, right? 
Um, God does an orphan us, um, including during this time period, right? Um, where, where we adults are feeling so much uncertainty. And, and so it really is this deeper call to, um, to, to ask ourselves, what does that mean for our lives? You know, what, what is our role in this picture in, in not letting anyone be orphaned? Um, um, so the Catholic Information Center um, in the RSVPing got some questions from, from people who are, who are logged in now. And, and one of them, um, Melissa, um, is for you. And the question is, uh, what's your advice for a new foster parent? Um, it, the things that you wish you knew <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> uh, back then that you know now. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, my biggest advice would be to get a very deep vent. Find a support group uh, before you even start fostering. Find a group. You can Google online. You can ask at an agency if they know where to meet and get yourself a, a very large group of people who will understand what it is that you are going through. Um, it was hard for me to not be able to talk about things with friends and family. And then also they don't get the lingo. There's a lot of really great acronyms that go along <laughs> with um, foster care. And, and it was hard to explain it to people, but when speaking with other foster and adoptive parents, you know, they just nodded. You would say something and they're like, oh, I know exactly what that means. Um, and also just really be willing to be transparent about how you're feeling. I always, always, always tell prospective foster parents to get a therapist, um, take care of you. You're gonna need someone to talk to when you um, start delving into the hurts that your children have faced. Um, you're gonna need to do that. But yeah, just surround yourself with people, be willing to be really transparent about how you're feeling and recognize that it is okay that you don't know what to do. <laughs> it is, that's okay. Because you're not a licensed therapist, you're not, I mean, you are, but you're not a licensed therapist who has kids living with them, clients living with them 24 hours a day. Um, and, and so you're not going to be able to know everything. And, it's, and that's all right. They don't expect you to. So reach out. And the fact of the matter is that no one ever always knows what to do. <laughs> And so uh, a huge dose of humility is definitely called for, particularly in these situations, but in life, period. Yes. Oh, man. I could, I don't want to freak anybody out, but I'm telling you, I have some really great stories of just colossal failures on my end because we went from zero kids to three kids. I had to trade in a convertible for a minivan. Like I had no idea what I was doing. And, and yet, you know, they're alive and they're doing well, you know? Um, so yeah, just, just, it's a learning curve for all of you. <laughs> it's always a learning curve and we just need to help one another in it, right? Yes, definitely. Sarah, what, um, what, what do you, um, besides the, the, this key issue of, of the saving of a life potentially, what what do you try to convey to people about foster care and what's going through um, these children's heads that we we really we can't ignore and we can't turn off? Well, a couple of things that come to mind actually as we we're talking um, is you know a lot of people even when I, after my adoption um, I had friends ask me you know do you ever feel um, do you ever just wake up? In, in your own bed and look at the people and scared, you're scared of them because they're not related to you? Do you think they love you less because you're not their biological child? You know, you guys were talking about that earlier. Um, but I think something that's important is I think foster care kids don't, they, they start with nothing. So the love that they receive is, it means so much to them. And when you have that baseline of nothing, you have, a, I think you have a heart of gratitude. You have a heart that's willing to receive love and, and care. Um, and I think another thing is that while there can be, and I know in my own family, a lot of my siblings and myself, we acted out at times toward our foster care parents and toward um, even after my adoption. Um, but it's, that is coming from a place of pain. That's coming from a place of loss. Um, and that's something I always wanna convey because while 
my adopted family, my foster care family never made me feel for a second like I wasn't their biological own. I still had to grieve the loss of a mother, the loss of a father, the loss of my 10 other siblings, right? I went from 11 to none. And um, that's a lot of grief for a child to bear. You know, I think about grieving as an adult. Like it's hard for me to grieve as an adult. So think about grief as a child, that, that gravity of grief. Um, so that's something that they're going through. And while they might be acting out and saying things, hurtful things or behaving poorly, all these academic issues, those are outflows of that trauma, of that grief. Um, and I think that if, if potential foster care parents know that going in, they might have more grace with those children as they're parenting them and even after. Um, Andrea, um, Melissa, as we've noted, has been a plaintiff of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, our, our good friends there. And, um, and they, they, they scored a, a victory for, uh, for foster children in, in uh, that Michigan case and for families and for um, religious liberty as well. Uh, why is this Supreme Court case so important? You know, there's a lot of reasons why it's important. For lawyers, it's important, I think, um, just to clarify some legal issues right? Uh, boring legal issues about whether or not the government needs to make an exemption for religious objectors to uh, different kinds of policies, especially issues on endorsing same-sex marriage. And as we all know, when the Supreme Court uh, ordered nationwide recognition of the uh, legality of a same-sex marriage, it also at the same breath said there are going to be religious believers who still hold on to a traditional uh, definition of marriage and they deserve proper protection. So on, on the legal side, there's going to be some clarification, especially on this very important issue. Um, and this is where people of faith are really going to need to show that there is an animus. Uh, there isn't any kind of bigotry or, or animus. It's more coherency to traditional um, teaching of our faith. And, and it doesn't mean um, that we're excluding from the public square others. What we want to do is have, you know, as many people as possible responding to the issue. As a mom, uh, even though I'm not a foster and adoptive mom, as a mom, I know the value of a stable home and, and the value for a child that there's a home where he or she can feel loved and be um, loved for their uniqueness. And so this case is very important because it implicates whether we're going to focus on a child in need or whether we're going to put all of our focus on the desires of the prospective parents. Now, I don't think that the desires or interests or needs of prospective parents should be ignored, but I think what should drive our discussion when we think about foster care and adoption is how do we best meet the needs of this individual child. Um, and then as a Catholic, this case is really important because Catholic social services in Philadelphia, like St. Vincent's in Michigan, they've been doing this for a long time. And as an institution, an arm of the Catholic Church, this should be kind of a, a, a badge of honor for us that we've been responding to this call for so long and we don't wanna be um, either aggressively pushed out of the, the square or politely scooted away. Um, and also we need to know that our faith helps us to respond to vulnerable children in a unique way. Just like uh, Melissa was mentioning, her caseworkers are there for her and give their personal cell phones. This isn't a nine to five job. Responding to people in need, especially when you respond to them because you love God is 24 seven. And I think that the church as an institution and each one of us as Catholics or, or believers in different faith traditions, we need to see that all of us can add to it. All of us can dedicate our time. And so the case, uh, I think, is I have been saying it for the longest time. It's a huge case. It's a huge case because the future of kids depends on it. 
And uh, again, you know, I, I feel like this, this is an examination of conscience moment for, for us all, um, this, this pandemic. Um, and, and asking, if, if, if we're moving from this moment and not asking ourselves questions like, how can we love more? What does it mean to love the whole person, you know? Um, to see people as, as children of God and not as whatever, you know, label you put on them. Um, or they put on themselves, but at the end of the day, we're, we're created by God, you know, we're all in the same boat here. And we're all, um, as, as, um, as, as Sarah, I believe, said earlier, we, we live in a fallen world and we're all dealing with weaknesses and wounds and, and um, which gets to another of the questions that, that I see people who are logged in have sent. One of them, uh, Melissa, you're, you're going to love to speak to this because you hit on it earlier. Um, someone wrote that, um, you know, their, their life isn't, isn't all that perfect and they feel a little bit of a mess um, a lot of the time. And so how on earth um, could, could they subject um, a child, an innocent child to that mess? Um, you can do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a really good question. Um, I felt the same way. My husband and I, you know, we didn't have any kids. How could I trust them to put kids in my home when I didn't have any of our own biological children? Um, I mean, I, I'm sometimes a little sarcastic. How are they going to put a kid in my home? You know, uh, I, I have piercings and tattoos and my head shaved. How are the judge going to say I'm a good fit for being a mother? But, you know, I tricked them all. And, you well, know, Melissa, you make us all look cooler. So thank you. <laughs> Try to help, guys. <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, none of us have our lives together. None of us do. If we did, then, you know, trust me, it would be, it would be all over the news. Uh, so really, if you, they're going to do such a, a deep, thorough background check on you anyway. They're going to learn all of the skeletons in your closet. You're going to get fingerprinted, you know, all this great. They're going to know about everything. Um, and they're not, the main thing is, are you capable of loving a child and standing by them? And as I always say, being more stubborn than them um, and, and just and caring for them and committing to them. Are you capable of that? Because that's all we really care about. Um, you know, can you, if you can do that, then it's okay if you leave your Christmas lights up past Easter. It's okay if there's dirty socks on the floor. It's okay if you don't dust. It's okay. Because really what's so important is loving that kid and giving them that safety, that structure, and that stability. I mean, and that, that love. If you can do that, then everything else will be just fine. Well, another practical question that people are asking themselves and emailing about is, but what about finances? Love isn't enough um, is, is the concern that a lot, of, uh, a lot of people have on a very prudent level, right? Um, yeah. what, what do you say to people about their financial worries? Um, I would say that my husband and I didn't have really any money and they were okay with that too. Um, so you do get a small stipend. I would like to debunk the theory right now that you get rich in foster care because <laughs> we do not get rich in foster care. Um, but you know, you do get a small stipend every month that does help provide for some of those things. Children come with WIC services. If you're concerned about going to the doctor, they come with Medicaid. Um, and even if you work, there is often, um, there are often resources for childcare. If you need to put a child in daycare, even mileage reimbursements for driving to and from the agency or to and from doctor appointments, you name it. Um, your agency, they fight for you. At least mine did. They always fight for you um, to take care of you. You get clothing allowances for children. They really try to take it, um, make it as as small of a burden on you financially as they can, because they don't want you to be worried about that. If that's what's going to stop you from taking in a kid. I mean, they're going to try to get rid of that because that's that's just, you know, logistics and red tape and calculator buttons. That's that's not, you know, they're they're going to help you with that so that you can focus on loving and 
supporting those children. One of the um, questions that I see people have is um, about single people adopting. And I, I just have to share that um, I have a friend um, named Darcy Olson that a lot of DC people will know. She worked at the Cato Institute a long time ago. Um, and she works at a, she started a group called Generation Justice now. She's, um, she's Mormon and she, um, she's single. And she went to um, child welfare wanting to mentor a, a teenager, you know, foster a, a teenager who maybe need, needed help for a little while, needed a home for a little while. And in her particular area in Phoenix at that time, they couldn't help her with a teenager and there were regulations that her particular living arrangement wouldn't work. There wasn't enough space anyhow. And there were different rules in different places. But long story short, she wound up taking in a baby and she's taken in a number of babies now. And she is the first to say that this is not the ideal. This is not what she set out to do. She wants a father for these children. But she's got this like the situation where the the church is rallied around her her family is rallied around her and it works and again she and i i'm the last person to you know promote this but but sometimes i i do i do believe that darcy has been called to do this and and god has somehow made it work for for her even though she thinks it's insane you know um and and not ideal seriously not ideal um, but these these children, in in most of the cases, the children that she's now adopted um, were were with um, were taken away from parents who were addicted to opioids, and they just couldn't get off it. And um, and the way she puts it is, you know, the, these children will die. Um, and um, and so to to the person who emails, and if there's anybody else um, in a similar situation, I pray about it you know, um, pray about it and see what, um, what God, uh, shows you about it. And, and, um, you know, sometimes, um, and this is speaking to everything, um, Andrew, you, you were mentioning, you know, um, you don't have to be a saint. Um, but you were also mentioning that these people are saints that you've met in Philadelphia, these, these foster parents and, and Sarah, you certainly talked to your, talked about your parents as, as saints and, and Melissa, I, I, uh, I get a very cool saint vibe from you, <laughs> um, whenever I'm in your presence and, um, no, it's just something in the air. It's not me. <laughs> Well, we're all praying to be them um, regardless. Um, but but, but what, one of the things that Mother Angelica, the founder of EWTN, who um, probably was a saint, maybe someday we will officially, she would say, just take the first step. Like if you think that maybe you're getting an edge to, to do something from God, just take the first step and and um, he'll provide the grace for the next step, you know? And, and I think that's probably key, you know, if, if people are listening tonight and they're, Think, or whenever they're listening to this and thinking, yeah, yeah, okay, I, I hear this. God doesn't orphan us. I can't orphan, let people be orphans. Maybe I need to step up to the plate. You know, just start seeking out some resources. Um, some of the Catholic agencies that help with adoption, like St. Vincent's in, in Michigan. Um, there are lots of secular agencies as well. You know, uh, yesterday I was talking to Dave the Thomas Foundation for, for adoption. Um, focus on the family. You know, there are ecum ecumenical resources um, it just, you know, start, start talking to people, start asking questions. Bethany Christian services is another one. You can just call them up and they'll, they'll start asking you questions and try to connect you with the right places. Sarah, do you have any favorite resources that you, you like to recommend to people? Oh yeah, definitely folks in the family. I know that they, um, they were a big resource for my family. They, my family uses resources. My dad, uh, faithful Catholic, my mom, evangelical. So we kind of ran that line in my family and um, they definitely helped us a ton, especially with, um, you know, the needs I had later, which, you know, about abuse history and um, the trauma stuff, they really were a big resource for us as kids. So definitely them. And Andrea, you know, one of the things that I wish um, every time we, we have to talk about one of these legal conflicts in the news um, or some political issue, you know, um, uh, funding adoption tax credits, you know, whatever it is. I want, I want people to see, you know, Melissa, I want them to see Sarah. I want them to hear these stories, um, like some of the stories in Philadelphia. Um, what are, who are some of the people that 
you want reporters to be talking to you um, as we, we near this Supreme Court case. Um, you want to become household names um, in, in um, conjunction with this, this Supreme Court case. Well, I would have to say Sarah and Melissa are my first. And I think, you know, both of you have, have really been a great, uh, great examples for people to bravely step forward um, and, and share your stories and, and put a personal face to um, this beautiful gift of, of adoption and foster care. The, the people in, in Philadelphia and uh, a family that adopted in Boston, in Chicago, and in Western Michigan, um, each one of these individuals who I, I mentioned before, I consider my friends are people that I wanna introduce to the world. Um, it's, it's, it's quite a daunting task to share the intimate details of your life, especially if you're a child, you know, former foster child or a child who's been adopted because there is this void or this uncertainty that, that you're really gonna be working through and grieving, just like Sarah mentioned. Um, but I think through the pain that many of these uh, kids, now adults, uh, had, they were able to turn it outward by sharing the gift that they received and really truly believe that it's a gift that they're giving to other people, to other kids, to know that they're loved and that they are, are wanted, even if around them at the time, it seems like they're on their own or that the, the people around them that should be loving them are doing anything but that. Um, I would mention, you know, Beckett, as, as you mentioned, is some of my favorite lawyers in, in the universe, and uh, they always find wonderful uh, individuals to be their name plaintiffs, just like Melissa and her husband, Sharon L. Fulton, and um, the other folks that were uh, plaintiffs in the, the Catholic Social Services. Their, their story is wonderful. Miss Fulton has adopted and has fostered kids for decades. And she does it as a single mom, quietly, like strongly. And, um, and the kids that have come in her house never fail to, to kind of become the better because of it. Um, her, one of her boys is, is one of the amici in, in this brief, Wayne Thomas. And he talks about how in their house, you know, she always had him doing all sorts of work around the house and he was handy. And he loved it because finally someone was asking for, you know, help me move this chair over here. And one of the things that they did is they would plant a tree in their backyard every time a new foster kid would come into the house. And he said he grew up seeing those trees grow just as those kids grew and were thriving. And now, you know, he can see those strong, stable oak trees in the backyard and, and see that that's him, he's become that. And, and it's only because of the beautiful openness of someone like M Mem Fulton. And that's, I think, a, a wonderful invitation for anybody who's listening, who's thinking about it, or anybody who thinks that they can lend a hand. Um, we want these kids to thrive. I'm so glad you mentioned Wayne Thomas. Um, he just jumps off the page in the amicus brief that you wrote. And like Sarah said, there's just like, there's so much gratitude um, that, that um, he, he radiates really. We only have a few minutes left. And I, so I wanna go to Sarah and then, and then Melissa. And Sarah, what I wanted to ask you is, um, is a simple and yet probably one of the most important, speaks to some of the most important issues of your life. What do you love the most about your foster parents, your adoptive parents? You know, I, I love that, you know, I belong with them, I guess. And I, you know, my, mom, my foster layer adopted mom always talks about the mistakes she made. I don't remember any of those mistakes though. And that is what is so amazing is anytime I reflect on them, I think about their love for me and how unconditional it was. Um, and that is what I believe saved me in the end. Um, and there's nothing, a that's what a child needs is that love. And um, I love that they're just regular people, but 
it's just a perfect example to the world what just to a couple that is committed to a child can do. And um, I almost feel compelled to share their story, you know, because of what they've done. Um, and they're not shy, shy about it at all or shy about their love for me at all. But um, they don't they don't see how much they've done for me. So I just, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question, but mm -hmm. I hope that that's my message. I, I never look at the mistakes. I always, I don't even see them. I just look at what they've done. Um, and their unconditional love for me is my favorite thing for sure. And Melissa, what do you love most about these precious children in your home? Oh man. Um, our young, I'll tell you something that happened the other day. Our youngest son is six and he's autistic. Um, oh man, I'm going to ruin my makeup. So he was outside and he picked a dandelion for me, you know, it's a flower. And he came inside to the downstairs bathroom, took a grungy cup that they put their toothbrushes in, filled it with what, like dumped the toothbrushes everywhere, filled it with water, put the dandelion in it and brought it upstairs and put it on my nightstand for me. So that when I went upstairs to go to bed that night, there's this flower sitting there, you know, from my, from my autistic six-year-old because, um, because he gets what love is and he loves me. Um, and I'm his mom and I get moments like that with all of my children. Um, <laughs> And I just, I'm so grateful. Every accomplishment that they achieve, every and adoptiversary that we get to celebrate, every um, every time that they're like, you know, that's my brother, he's my best friend. Every time we get to hear that and experience that, and every time I see them um, overcoming something that they've struggled with, it just fills my heart with such joy. And I'm so thankful that God um, was relentless in his pursuit of me uh, becoming a foster parent because he pushed, he pushed really hard. Um, and I, I really railed against him for a long time, but I just, those kids are so great. There are worlds, there are everything. Um, and we're just, we're just so thankful we get to love them. Thank you so much, Melissa. I, I have to say every day of this pandemic time, I just, I feel like I, maybe, maybe I'm getting simpler and simpler, but I mean, just figure out how to love more, you know? I mean, we're, we're spending all this time arguing about things that, that don't matter as much as they seem in the moment on Twitter, you know, <laughs> or whatever, whatever um, platform you're on or, um, and uh, yeah, no, um, there, there are children who, who need help. And um, that, those are the kind of things that we have to answer for, you know, whether or not we paid attention or not. And- yeah. um, Hey, Catherine, can I, can I bump in here for just a second? And just, I wanna say really quick, I know we're running out of time, but um, like you keep mentioning like that we need to love more and keep going and people who are having these inklings about what to do. Um, and if they can do this job, but can I just say that like 12 years ago when we started this process, I had no idea that God had all of this in store for us. I thought maybe we would get a kid or two. I never thought we would have five. I never thought that we would get to be, um, you know, standing up for our agency and their beliefs. I never thought that we would, I'd be sitting here doing this because um, like I said, I'm not, I'm not that typical person. I don't have my stuff all together all of the time. I don't look cookie cutter. Um, my filter is iffy at best. And I don't always, you know, know how to, you know, how to do all this stuff. And so God can do amazing things through us, through us. You know, it just takes that mustard seed of faith. It takes that mustard seed of obedience and he will do so much with it. And it's not just the here and now. God has a plan for the future. I mean, he's still 12 years later, he's still pulling stuff out of the hat. I have no idea he still had in store for me. And so if you feel that call, you feel that urge, you better take it because he is going to run with it in a really big way.
Thank you. That, I can't think of a better way to close, Melissa. And I, I will certainly be praying for everyone who is listening to this tonight or any other time and, and really trying to answer that, that call that, that God maybe has for you that Melissa was just talking about. Thank you, Andrea Pachotti-Bear. Thank you, Sarah Zakorski. Thank you, Melissa Buck. Thank you to Rosemary Eldridge and everybody at the Catholic Information Center. And, um, and National Review Institute continues to do events with, with Rosemary and the CIC, the Catholic Information Center, and, and, uh, and other places we try to highlight resources. So, so please feel free to take a look at National Review and, and National Review Institute as well, as, as in addition to keeping up with the, the Catholic Information Center and the beautiful work they do. And I should, I should plug too, in addition to the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, um, Andrea works for the, the Catholic Association and Sarah works for Louisiana Right to Life, all these wonderful, wonderful groups. So thank you again, everyone, for joining us and uh, have, have a wonderful night. God bless you. <laughs>